Welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. For many of us involved in sheep production or agriculture of just about any kind, watching the weekly market report is as routine as waking up in the morning. Now, at least for me, watching and understanding those reports and what is driving them are not always the same thing. Well, many of us know exactly what is happening on our farms or ranches. The reality is when we sell our products, we are often beholden to market factors that can be confusing to comprehend to say the least. The dynamics of lamb trade in and outside of the U.S. are, well, just that, dynamic. Luckily, our guest today is an expert on the finer points of the pressures influencing the domestic lamb market. Here with me is Dr. Tyler Cousins, Agricultural Economist with Livestock Marketing Information Center. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Cousins. Thank you, Jake. Glad to be here. Now, Dr. Cousins, before we jump into the meat and potatoes of the podcast, can you let our audience know a bit more about your background and how you became interested and involved in economic analysis of the sheep industry? Sure. You know, so my background is, uh, you know, I grew up on a uh, farming operation where we had livestock and raised crops in uh, Colorado. Um, so, you know, part of that uh, operation, we did have uh, sheep and lamb production on there and kind of at our height there with the sheep and lamb side of things, we had about 5,000 head that we were feeding there. So I grew up around a lot of sheep uh, and cattle. Uh, so that's kind of my experience and, and always had sort of a love and a passion for that and just kind of kept going down that direction. And and uh, was fortunate enough to get some education in the agricultural economic side of things. And so uh, definitely been a, a passion of mine and, and an interest of mine and, and, and made a career of it. So thankful for that. Awesome. So we know that you're at the, the Livestock Marketing Information Center. And I guess I'm just curious, what exactly is the LMIC and, and the mission of the center? Sure. Yeah. So the Livestock Marketing Information Center, uh, we are uh, a center that was started about in 1955. Um, so we are uh, technically a part of um, Colorado State University's Extension Services, uh, and our mission primarily is to support uh, extension efforts, um, and we support about 28 land-grant universities, and so we have uh, 28 land-grant universities that are uh, members in, of, our, um, of the Livestock Marketing Information Center, and uh, we support them with providing uh, research, analysis, uh, an economic forecasts of livestock production, um, and we also provide a, a host of data for these um, for these members. Um, and so, you know, kind of our primary mission is to support whatever their efforts are, their research uh, and their forecasting efforts. We do forecasts for uh, cattle and beef, pork, lamb, chicken. Uh, we also do forecasts for corn, uh, soybeans and hay as uh, inputs into uh, just the livestock sector. So our focus is primarily livestock side of things. Um, but uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, our mission is really to try and support uh, just a lot of the uh, the extension efforts that are going on across the nation. Okay, great. Okay, we'll jump right in. Um, can you give us uh, some of the general factors that have uh, a major influence on lamb trade in the U.S.? Sure, yeah. So I think when we kind of have to look at this kind of broader picture here of, of lamb trade, we have to kind of parse this out and from an economic standpoint, right, um, I'm looking at this specifically from a supply and demand perspective, right? And so there's a few factors that we can discuss uh, further on those side of things. 
Uh, so at, at its basic level, we're looking at just supply and demand. But there's also some other things when it comes to land trade that we have to think about. You know, exchange rates is a big one. Um, you know, what kind of goes on there. And, and generally, when I when I think of exchange rates, um, kind of at its, ba- its basic level, if we think about the value of the dollar, um, and so if the dollar is strong, you know, the general rule of thumb, if the, if the dollar is strong, then um, it is harder for the U.S. to export goods, right? So it's more expensive for the importer to buy goods from the U.S. Um, conversely, though, if the dollar is strong, it is cheaper for the U.S. to import goods, right? So if the dollar is strong, we, we may see exports slow down, but we may see imports pick up, right? So that's kind of the, the general rule of thumb and thought process when we talk about uh, exchange rates. Now, another thing we have to think about when it comes to land trade is just land prices. Um, you know, we think about this both domestically and internationally, right? And so we're looking at what land prices are uh, in the U.S., um, but also what, what are they what are they what are land prices globally here? And specifically when we look at uh, global prices, we're kind of looking, at least from my perspective, looking a little bit more of, at what's going on in Australia uh, and kind of what exchange rates are doing um, between the U.S. and Australia. And that, that definitely impacts trade flows between uh, the, the two countries. But we also have some of these larger sort of economic conditions that we're watching. You know, we've, we've definitely been in sort of this an inflationary environment um, definitely in the U.S., but we're, that's that's the case uh, globally as well, right? And so those factors have different um, pressures that they apply to different economies, and so those can be uh, pushing and pulling as far as trade flows and effects that um, how they impact land uh, trade flows. And so uh, it, it's a it's a sort of a balancing act between a lot of these sort of factors here to try and figure out what's actually going on with land trade. Absolutely. Okay, you said that supply and demand is really kind of that foundation of uh, the lamb trade in, in the U.S. Uh, I'm curious, how exactly is supply and demand tracked in regard to U.S. lamb? Sure, I think that's a good question. You know, and as an economist, you know, when we kind of look at these two things, I think what we keep in mind is, is at the end of the day, when we're looking at supply and demand, um, supply will equal demand. And so that kind of makes sure that things stay in balance uh, and that uh, just what we're producing is consumed. Um, and so when we kind of piece those two things out, we look specifically at supply and kind of how we track that. There's uh, kind of a few things that, that I'm looking at. Um, one of the key things that I'm looking at is, is uh, USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service reports inventory levels. Uh, that report was released at the end of January, right? And that's a key report that comes out once a year. And in that report, specifically what we're looking at are inventory levels, um, specifically uh, what we have as far as uh, breeding flock, uh, market lambs that are out there, uh, and what the lamb crop was that we had in 2022, right? So that gives us kind of a snapshot picture of what our inventory levels were as of January 1. So that gives us an idea of, okay, this is where we stand. What can we expect in 2023? Now, that being said, there are other pieces of information that kind of come out throughout the year that I'm using to sort of track what uh, supplies are actually flowing through the system and how those sort of match up to what the, the inventory report said. And some of those pieces that I'm looking at are, you know, what, what's uh, slaughter um, levels, you know, and that's on a weekly basis and a monthly basis. Uh, we also have carcass weights that come out on a weekly and monthly basis. 
We have uh, beginning stocks, which is basically cold storage that I'm looking at. And then I'm also looking at imports. So, right, we, so we have basically slaughter. We have uh, stock levels and imports that pretty much de- determine our supply side picture that we're looking at. Okay. And so then we know kind of what's going on in the supply side. And that's a little bit easier to sort of determine the supply side because we have information that comes out. We know what's kind of flowing through there. Now, when we switch to the demand side, uh, it gets a little bit more tricky, right? Because demand is, is not as concrete as the supply side. But a few of the things on the, the demand side that we're looking at, right? Um, so we're looking at uh, just what our um, ending stocks, right? So how many how much of those stocks were sort of built or were, were drawn down during the period. Uh, but we're also looking at what, what exports were um, shipped as well. And so at the end of the day, when we, when we take off um, what we know what our total supply was, we subtract whatever our exports and ending stocks were, that gives us basically uh, what we call total disappearance, right? And so that's just the sure. lamb that was available. And one of the measures that we use uh, to kind of gauge what's going on with demand is per capita consumption, right? And per capita consumption is just whatever that total disappearance was at the end of the day, and then divide that by population, right? And so that kind of gives us a gauge of demand. It is not demand. Uh, it is not a, an exact measure of demand. Really, it's just a, a the amount of lamb that was available per person in the U.S. And so that's sort of some, hopefully gives an idea of what we're trying to track when we look at supply and demand and just sort of the flow and try and balance things throughout the the year and we're looking at uh, just sort of the the flow of lamb throughout the the economy. Sure, that's great. So you mentioned several reports that uh, the USDA puts out uh, and that you use that information. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, you you take that information to build a a forecast, I, I think, what, what exactly are those forecasts, you know, trying to predict? And uh, yeah, I guess I'd like to ask you if you're willing to maybe comment on uh, some of the general trends that you're seeing, you know, for the next year or two. Sure. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a good question, you know, because it, it the, the forecasting side of things is it, it can get a little bit tricky as far as as uh, just data that's out there and available, um, you know, but at, at you know kind of laying out the supply and demand side of things that kind of gives us an idea of what we should expect. And so when I come to a forecasting standpoint, you know, as I had mentioned, kind of know exactly a little bit more clearly what's going on on the supply side. And when we think about this from a trade standpoint, you know, we, we know what supply is going on. Um, we have a pretty good idea what, what consumption has been say for the last year. Um, and so what I, my thinking is you, you kind of use those two factors and then you try and back into a trade number. And so it can get a little bit tricky kind of trying to balance and, and factor in a lot of these different moving pieces as far as exchange rates, um, prices, and just uh, overall economic factors. But in general, we, we, there are pretty good trends that occur within um, the lamb trade side of things. And so, you know, when I do my forecasting, uh, my forecasts are on a quarterly basis. Um, and so, you know, when I'm looking at my forecast, I kind of pencil out what I think uh, – imports will be and then i'm watching kind of that weekly and monthly data to try and give me an idea of how close my forecast is and then i'll sort of adjust accordingly you know and 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 when once i sort of make those adjustments i'll go back and look at my per capita consumption does that make sense am i getting a little bit too high or too low on that so it's sort of a balancing act of kind of back and forth iterative process here to see 
um, what's going on and, and kind of gauge a lot of these factors that are going on. Um, so watching a lot of the, the information that comes out um, is definitely a key part of kind of this forecasting effort that I do um, and, and, and trying to balance a lot of these pieces here. So you, you mentioned, uh, obviously, supply and demand uh, is a vital component of developing those forecasts. But you also talked about the USDA NAS report. Uh, and I, I guess I'm also wondering, are there some other key resources that you use to, to develop those projections? And, and what are maybe some differences between those those reports? Sure, that's a good question. You know, and I think there there's it. it it's there's a lot of information that's out there that USDA provides for us, um, and very fortunate to have that information. And so, I guess a few things that I'll mention in regard to your question there. So, when it comes to kind of this forecasting effort, um, you know, obviously, kind of looking at it from my perspective at a quarterly basis. But I mentioned there's there's weekly and monthly data that comes out, and some of the reports that I look at specifically from a trade standpoint, um, you know. Is, Looking at some of the weekly data that's available, um, USDA's Ag Market Service, they have a report that comes out every Friday, and it is uh, called the Imported Meat Past for Entry in the U.S. by Country, right? And so I think this is a, a one of those reports that I use. It's a weekly report. Um, now, one of the, the things about this report that you have to keep in mind is this data is reported by country, obviously. Um, as the title says, but it, it's it's also reported in metric tons. Um, it's reported for beef, pork, lamb, mutton, veal, goat, and poultry. Uh, but it, it does lag about one to two weeks uh, just from when the data is reported. So there is a lag there. So you kind of have to keep in mind just sort of when the trade flow is coming in, what the report is saying, uh, and also converting that to a pounds, right? Because it's in a metric uh, unit. And so um, there's kind of some nuances about that report, but it is, it is a valuable report. Um, and so it, it's a, really I use that as a gauge and sort of a directional gauge for what is going on for uh, lamb imports. Um, one thing I will note, though, that weekly data, if you do aggregate that, it won't aggregate up to the monthly trade data. And the monthly trade data is actually the official statistics from USDA. So that monthly data is what I'm really trying to gauge what's actually coming on, coming as far as lamb imports. Um, and so I use that weekly data to try and gauge what's coming in monthly. Now, um, on the monthly data side of things, there's kind of two things that we have to keep in mind here. So monthly data is reported uh, from USDA's Foreign Ag Service, uh, and they do report that through their global agricultural trade system. We commonly refer to that as uh, GATS uh, system or website. Um, and the GATS data is uh, product weight data, and it's reported on metric tons, right? So we have to keep in mind that that's a little bit different thing they're reporting there. Now, um, once that data is reported, the USDA's Economic Research Service, they also report trade data as well, and that report is uh, on a carcass weight basis, and it is in pounds. Um, so ERS uses conversion factors to convert the USDA FAS data from a product weight in metric tons to a carcass weight in pounds, right? And that, those conversion factors are available on ERS's website, um, and so that, that information is out there and can be found. But um, I just want to point out sort of that difference between a product weight and a, cut it, cut it, a carcass weight, 
Um, so when, we're, when I'm talking about those two things, we have to keep in mind if we um, product weight is basically when you go to the grocery store and you buy, um, you know, say a rack of lamb, that is a product weight. Now, when you um, look at data that if you want to convert that to a carcass weight, the carcass weight is basically the primal value or the primal cut um, that would be sold at a wholesale level. Right, so when it's sold at a wholesale level, that's a carcass weight. Then it's, when it gets sold at a retail level and further processed into those specific cuts, that is a product weight. And so there's a little bit of some nuances there that we have to yeah. keep in mind with this data as it comes available. Absolutely. Thanks for explaining that. So import and export product, is that tracked using those same reports? Or, or is there something else that really gives you a feel for what that data is? And, and maybe what are the, the current projections uh, for the future in regards to import and, and exports? Yeah, so, you know, I, most of that data that I had mentioned um, as far as the monthly data goes, right, that's that's tracked, um, you know, and reported through FAS and ERS. Um, but I think one of the things we have to keep in mind uh, when we look at some of this this data, you know, and it starts to get a little bit more, more nuanced here, and, you know, when we have some of this data that is imported, um, you know, they have to track it and they track it by specific cuts and, and, and primal values and whatnot. Um, and they use a, a system called the harmonized system. Um, and the, the definition for that is it's a standardized numerical method of classifying traded products. It's used by customs authorities around the world to identify products when assessing duties and taxes and for statistical purposes, right? So not only do we have these reports that are, are giving us a wealth of information, but it's also sort of standardized across uh, countries. And so a lot of these countries, so when we track these trade flows, we're tracking the same products. And so we know exactly what's going in and out of these countries. And uh, so we can sort of analyze from statistical purposes what, what's actually going on as trade flows. And so it's a, it's a, uh, a handy system, but it can be a little bit nuanced. Um, and it, 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 it gets disaggregated it, down to the HS10 level is what they refer to it as. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, just know that there are, there's a system out there that sort of standardizes what goes on as far as trade flows. Um, and there's a num numerical value associated with those trade flows that come in and out of, of the, the, the U.S. And, and globally. And uh, one of the things I'll just know when it comes to HS codes, if you do want to look up some of the stuff, LAM falls under HS code 0204. Um, and, you know, and so that's uh, o, the O2 is, is basically meat. And then you disaggregate a little bit more in the O2, O4 is lamb. You know, if you want to look up beef and pork, beef is O2, O2, pork is O2, O3. All right, so a little bit nuanced sort of discussion there, but just sort of one of those things to kind of keep in mind when we sort of talk about these trade flows. If you hear anybody talk about HS codes, just know that there's uh, codes associated with each of these, these uh, cuts and so forth. Um, and now I know you had mentioned some of this discussion on kind of the forecasting side of things. Um, and so like I had mentioned, you know, my forecast is on a quarterly basis. Uh, and so I'm kind of looking at those weekly monthly trade flows to kind of get an idea of what, what's going on and, and sort of adjust my forecast accordingly. Um, and so when I look at sort of this forecasting side of things, what I'm looking at is sort of some seasonal trends. Uh, specifically, do we see any um, times in the year when we have more or less uh, trade flows that come in. Um, and what we've seen over the last couple of years is generally the second and third quarters have been a little bit stronger for lamb imports, uh, where the first and fourth quarters have been slightly lower. 
Um, but if we kind of look at this on a monthly basis, we see that uh, just lamb imports have been fairly consistent. We can't really say that there's uh, too many um, peaks or, or, or valleys when it comes to trade flows. Uh, but in general, if we kind of look at kind of seasonal trends on a monthly basis, March is often that month when we see a little bit more lamb imports, right? And that kind of makes sense if we think about yeah. the Easter holiday typically falling in that April timeframe. We'll we'll uh, usually see a little bit more lamb imports kind of come in that month before kind of getting staged, product staged for the, the Easter holiday. Um, so that's kind of a typical trend. Now, as far as uh, actual forecasts go, where I stand with my forecast is, uh, so currently for 2023, I have lamb imports forecast at 350 uh, million pounds. Now that's down about two to 3% from what we saw last year. And then I have 2024 uh, at 340 million pounds. Now that's down about another 3%. Now, one of the things I do want to kind of keep it to, to just point out now in 2021 and 22, we did see some of the, the largest lamb imports that we've, we've ever had uh, in the U.S. here. So we're coming off of some pretty high levels uh, for lamb imports. Um, so, you know, and then we kind of factor in some of the economic factors that we have as far as inflation and exchange rates, um, you know, so kind of factoring those in and that's sort of my ex expectation for kind of a two to 3% decline uh, in lamb imports over these next couple of years uh, as we, we kind of move forward here. Now, as far as my lamb, my import forecast goes, you know, I'm also kind of considering some of the things that are going on in Australia. Um, you know, I think it, it's nice with Australia, they do put out their own forecasts and kind of their expectations as far as what their uh, production levels are going to be, what their flock size is. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're actually expecting a pretty substantial growth in their production over the next couple of years. Um, you know, they've had better weather um, that has allowed for a better pasture uh, and just available feed supplies for them. Um, and, you know, but they, they have a few different uh, markets that they're shipping to not just the U.S., right? And so they're looking at areas such as those Asian market markets, specifically China. Um, they also do have a free trade agreement that they uh, have worked out with uh, the U.K., and that should be coming into effect this year. Uh, and so they're they're looking at, at, at getting a lot of that product into quite a few different markets. Um, you know, but obviously they're facing some of the same economic factors that we are with high inflation, high uh, input costs, uh, lower labor uh, availability, um, and so you know they're they're factoring all of those things in there, and and you know they're they're uh, they're looking at the economics to see where they can get the most profit for their their product, uh, and so you know kind of keeping a lot of those things in mind in my forecast and trying to factor all those things in there, and and so um, you know that at the end of the day, that day those are some of the the things that I look at when I kind of put together my forecast. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, you talked to or you touched on exchange rate. Is that kind of the, the main reason why the U.S. Is, is a desirable market for Australia or Australia and New Zealand? You know, you said they've got extra land production, that uh, you know, environmental factors have really been in their favor. They're going to be looking to ship that elsewhere. Asia's close by. But what is it about the U.S. that makes them you know, so desirable? You know, I, it, I think if you kind of take a step back and you look at just um, overall population, one of, the, one of the larger countries that consumes lamb, 
Uh, but then you also think about just from an economic standpoint, uh, we have a, a just a larger income level uh, that we uh, have here in the U.S., a uh, larger disposable income, right? So there's, there's a little bit more, uh, uh, I guess, available funds as, a, as, a, as consumers go to purchase something like LAMP. Uh, and so, you know, and if you kind of think about just the other markets that Australia is, is looking to get into, the Asian market, specifically China, uh, UK, and to an extent Europe, um, you know, those, those are countries that what I just described the U.S. says, those are similar countries too, right? They have an economic uh, base that is, is getting wealthier. They're looking to diversify some of their meat protein sources that they're consuming. You know, and so Australia is trying to position themselves as, as kind of that leading um, primary supplier of lamb globally. And they're focusing on those markets that higher, have a higher income base and, and a population that is more inclined to consume lamb. So also I want to circle back to something that you mentioned uh, in your answer a second ago, and that was sort of the seasonality of, of production in, in the U.S. You know, how does the fact that, you know, we have a much higher supply during a particular time of the year, how, how does that affect the amount of product uh, and when product is imported into the United States? Sure. You know, and, and I guess sort of touching real quickly on kind of the seasonality of just domestic land production here in the U.S., you know, and when we're recording this right now, we're sitting a few weeks out from Easter. You know, we've already set, started to see weekly slaughter levels start to increase, uh, kind of getting product staged uh, to go into the retail sector for uh, consumption. You know, and so that being said, I kind of mentioned March is, is sort of that month where we we can often see higher import levels, right? And similar thought process there, you know, just getting lamb uh, on a ship, shipped across the, the oceans to the U.S., right? There's kind of that 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 uh, lead time that you have to factor in there. But what happens when there's a disruption, it, 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 particularly at those that kind of high flow period? Uh, what, what happens to, sure. to, to the market and, and, you know, what, what's the ripple effect there? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, you know, I think the the pandemic was kind of one of those those times that we can really sort of, it sort of gives us a really good idea of what kind of happens with that kind of a, a situation where we have a, an external factor that sort of shocks the system. You know, and so typically what we've kind of seen, what we saw during the pandemic with, with that was, you have these plants shut down and you basically have lands that get backed up in the system. And that be, when that occurs, right, those lambs are sitting in those feedlots or on those pastures. They're, they're still growing. They're still getting bigger and heavier. What happens is you have, once these lambs can actually then get processed, you have lambs coming through that are heavier. And so heavier lambs means we're going to have more lamb uh, production because um, they just weren't able to stay up with the marketings. Uh, you know, and this is not unique to the lamb industry. You know, we saw this happen in the cattle industry and the hog industry. Um, but I think one of the things that we also saw happen kind of post-pandemic once these these uh, slaughter facilities got back online and on track was, you know, they were able to 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 get through some of those backed up supplies pretty, pretty quickly, I would argue, um, you know, because they can run an f- extra shift or they can uh, do more kills on a Saturday uh, and so I think there's, we have to sort of, that's one of the things we learned that, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, if they do need to get kind of through, work through some of these supplies, they can do it. You know, there's also some tricky things with that, right? Because there's more costs associated with that. You have the labor force to do that. 
So there's a lot of factors that kind of come into play with that. Um, but that's one of the things that we saw uh, sort of transpire during the pandemic. And I think it's a, it's a, it definitely was a learning, learning curve for the industry. Um, but kind of give us an idea of, of what uh, we can sort of expect. And uh, if we have sort of some of these external shocks that, that, that uh, occur. Sure. Okay. So to this point, you've really laid out uh, really well, kind of the imports and, and product that comes from Australia and how that affects the, the trade dynamics. But uh, I want to come back and, and ask you about export markets that are available to the U.S. Uh, is that something that you see uh, expanding or changing or growing in the future? Yeah, I, I, do, I do think there are some opportunities on the export side of things. Um, you know, specifically when I kind of look at the export side, uh, as far as U.S. goes, we've seen um, in these past few years, we actually export more mutton than we do lamb. Okay. You know, so, for example, in 2002, mutton exports were uh, 5.3 million pounds. That was actually up 77% from the prior year. So that was about the highest in about the last five years. So a pretty good amount of mutton exports there. And a, a good proportion of that actually goes straight south to Mexico. Um, you know, so that's our, our primary, primary destination. We sent 1.4 million pounds. Last year, that was about 25% of our total mutton exports. Now, on the lamb export side of things, a uh, little bit lower there. We, we exported uh, 530 pounds in, in 2022. That was actually up 11% from uh, 2021. And similar on that, uh, Mexico is that primary destination. About half of those lamb exports went straight down to Mexico. Um, now, so Mexico is kind of that, that major market when it comes to the export side of things. But we're also seeing some pretty good inroads. Uh, as far as, as, as flows into uh, specifically Central America and the Caribbean, we've seen a, a little bit more mutton exports down to the Dominican Republic. You know, so when it comes to kind of this discussion on the export side, um, it, it, it comes down to, well, obviously exchange rates, right, because we're, we're shipping to kind of the Central American countries, uh, but also a proximity and logistical side of things, right, because we, you know, we have a, our neighbor straight to the south of Mexico that uh, has been a good trading partner for us. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a kind of a logistical advantage for us to ship more to those countries. And so, you know, definitely some opportunities with our, our uh, trading partners to the south of us. So also, you know, one of the statistics that maybe I come across is cold storage. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, kind of in that export uh, opportunity and cold storage, uh, there, there seems to be times of year when, when cold storage fluctuates. Uh, you know, does that all that does all that product end up on the plates of American consumers? You know, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, and cold storage is is kind of one of those things that you know, from my perspective, there's kind of two ways of looking at cold storage. Cold storage is kind of an indication of can be used as an indication of what's going on as far as demand, right? So if we start to see some of those cold storage stocks start to increase, that can be an indication that demand is slowing down, product is getting backed up. And they need to put it somewhere, so they put it in cold storage, right? Now, that being said, eventually a lot of if that buildup does happen, you know, eventually it can end up onto the plates of American consumers. But there's also kind of this other side of looking at cold storage, where it's like, well, cold storage can also be a place where product gets staged for the export market. Um, and we 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 have seen this in the past, just a couple of times where uh, product gets you know, will we'll actually get staged, uh, specifically like mutton. 
um, will get staged and then it'll get shipped to Mexico, right? So it could be one of those things where they're staging product, getting enough product in cold storage and then shipped to Mexico, right? And, you know, I was looking at some of the trade flow data for Mexico and a lot of the product that we do ship to Mexico is frozen product. So I would argue that a lot of that product, if we do see a little bit of buildup, it could be one of two things or both. It could be product that is, is kind of getting, um, you know, demand is slowing down a little bit, but it also could be product that is getting staged to get exported to uh, countries such as Mexico. Okay. Now, something else that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, obviously we're in an in inflationary period. Uh, I, w- I would imagine most of our uh, audience is well aware of that. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to ask you to expand on, if you don't mind, how some of those large economic factors, inflation, uh, you know, maybe it's instability in the stock market or the banking system, how, how does that trickle down and impact the American lamb trade? Yeah, you know, and I think that's a good question. And, uh, you know, it, it, some of those economic factors, you know, they're, they're going to vary by consumer, right? You know, it, it, yeah. depending on your um, income level and so forth, you, you're going to change some of those behaviors and sort of your demand profile. Um, but I think in general, if we kind of look at what's going on, and we've been in this inflationary environment for you know, a year or two now, and, and, and I think a lot of consumers are sort of figuring out what's going on, but there's sort of some uncertainty there. Um, so they're, they're definitely trade, changing up how they're, they're consuming meat, um, but we're still seeing a pretty good demand for just meat consumption um, across the board, not just in lamb, but in beef, pork, and chicken. Um, you know, but uh, the, the persistence of this uh, inflation is, is definitely causing some uh, concern. Um, we don't totally know how long this is going to stick around um, and just the uncertainty there. But, uh, you know, I think consumers are learning to live with this and it's just a matter of getting wages to kind of catch up to this as well. Um, you know, but I think it, when we think about this from a trade flow standpoint, you know, obviously that I had mentioned this inflation side of things. It's not just something unique to the U.S. that this is happening across, across the globe. You know, when we think about Australia as kind of that main um, supplier globally of lamb, you know, they're experiencing... You know, last I had read in January, they had inflation that was over 7%, right? You know, and so there, and the Australian dollar has gained in strength too, right? So, you know, if we think about sort of that exchange rate side of things, you know, if, if the Australia's exchange rate is increasing, that means it's harder for them to export product. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a lot of these factors going on here. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of this is still playing out, um, you know, but I think we're, we're kind of watching a lot of this with interest to see how consumers are going to, react to this you know and one of the things that we saw sort of come out from the pandemic uh, was a lot of consumers started purchasing a lot more meat at the retail store Um, and they did that and learned how to cook a lot of this product at home and when we we talk about this from a lamb perspective you know they oftentimes consumers were consuming lamb at a restaurant now you more or less have the pandemic hit they're stuck at home but they still want to consume lamb. So they learned how to cook it at home. And we saw a lot of that, uh, a pretty big increase in consumption um, kind of right after the pandemic there, uh, consumers still consuming a lot of lamb at home, cooking at home. Um, and we've seen a lot of that sort of continue out through, through these last couple of years, which I think is a pro- positive sign just from a consumption standpoint. They've sort of adjusted through this inflationary environment, the higher cost for, for just food and, and meat and lamb specifically. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, my expectation is that a lot of that is still going to continue and we'll see some pretty good lamb consumption over these next couple of years. 
just largely because consumers have, have learned how to consume at home at home and cook it at home. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting, and you read my mind because I was I was thinking in that direction. Uh, you know that the, the maybe lamb consumption uh, patterns have changed in the last couple of years. Uh, they're obviously cooking you know at home became something that was a, a little more common uh, during the pandemic and if that stuck around and, and how that impacted uh, lamb consumption. Uh, so thanks thanks for laying that out. Uh, it does make me curious, you know, were there, were there particular cuts maybe that were preferred by, uh, you know, folks that were, were trying to, to cook lamb at a home or, or is that getting a little too nuanced to, to really track? It, it, it does get a little bit nuanced there, but, you know, I think um, in general, you know, if you kind of think about just sort of lamb cuts in general, um, you know, sort of the rack and the loin are a pretty good size cut for a, a small family. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think from a proportion standpoint, it's a pretty easy meat to, you know, cut a meat to buy at the retail store, uh, prepare for a meal and consume. Um, and you're not going to have a lot of leftovers or uh, just, um, you know, excess of what do you do with this or... Yeah. Do we have to eat all of this at this meal? Something to that degree. Uh, so I think it's a very good size for consumers, and they've gotten used to that proportion size and, and how to consume it and, and cook it too. So in an earlier chat that that we had, you mentioned to me that meat production globally is starting to slow down. Uh, as an economist, what do you kind of glean from that and how that might impact the American sheep industry? You know, I think that's a that's a good question, a good point. Um, you know, some of the things is is I kind of in the nature of the work that I do, kind of you, you take a step back and you look look at what's kind of going on globally, right? You know, and I've been touching on quite a bit here just the inflationary pressures, right? And it, it's it's in, it's impacting a lot of just the input costs globally, right? So when I talk about input costs, I'm thinking about feed, uh, and so you know those input costs going higher. That starts to 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 uh, impact profitability. You know, if you see just livestock prices not keeping up with the uh, costs of production, you know, that starts to limit profitability, right? And so, if profitability starts to limit, then you can see start of a, a slowdown in just overall uh, production, right? Um, and so, that's more or less what we're kind of starting to see, uh, specifically with when we're looking at kind of beef, pork, and chicken. Um, you know, and some of that is just sort of uh, uh, trends that we typically see, um, you know, when we, when we think about beef, you kind of have the, the cattle cycle that is, is kind of a nine to 10 year cycle. Um, we've seen that sort of playing out now. We're kind of getting into one of those low spots as far as, as beef production here in the U.S. specifically and globally. You know, but when we think about it on the pork side, we, we, we kind of always have to look at China as kind of that main producer there. You know, and they've had quite a few disease issues there in that country that have impacted their production significantly, right? And so they're they're looking for uh, meat protein sources to put on the plate of their consumers. Um, and so, you know, you, you have a, when you kind of look at the picture now, you, you have a smaller just overall pool of meat protein sources globally that can be sourced for a lot of these countries. Uh, and so, you know, once a lot of that starts to get bought up or maybe priced too high, then, you know, they're looking for other options. And lamb is definitely one of those. And, and, and I mentioned, you know, those Asian markets, there's a, a growing uh, level of consumption of lamb in those industries. And so you you start to see a little bit more of uh, just lamb going to markets that you 
typically would see uh, or just higher levels that uh, going to those markets. And so you, you have uh, sort of some different economic factors that are going on there as far as just consumption level goes. You know, and you also have to keep in mind just the exchange rates when it comes to just this trade flow and, and uh, still trying to sort out what's actually going to shake out as far as that side of things go uh, from an, an economic standpoint. Sure. You know, and so when I think when we kind of look at the U.S. side of things, um, as far as just production goes uh, at, for lamb, um, you know, these last couple of years have been pretty tough. We've had some drought that's been pretty persistent, stuck around for quite a while. Um, you know, specifically in the western U.S., we've seen a, a reprieve of that uh, here as of late in the western U.S., but we've seen drought pick up a little bit more in kind of those Plains regions of the U.S., uh, kind of Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, um, you know, areas that have sheep, sheep and lamb production. Uh, and so, you know, we're still not out of the wood, woods on that, um, but definitely seeing some some uh, reprieve there. But we also have to keep in mind, you know, just available range of pasture. Um, hay production is down. Stocks are down. So hay prices are up. You know, so just that cost of production side of things is, is definitely in focus for a lot of these producers and something that we're watching very closely uh, just from a livestock standpoint, right? Because that's a uh, kind of one of those main inputs that we're, we have in the livestock sector that we're, we're watching. Sure. All right, Dr. Cousins, uh, this is, it's been a, a wealth of, of information. Uh, where can, you know, our audience or, or someone go to, to keep up with the forecast that you mentioned and are developing, or at least your reports uh, about the American lamb trade. Sure, yeah. So I, I think one of the best ways to to, to uh, find out more about us is um, go to our website. It's lmic.info. Uh, again, that's lmic.info. Uh, that's a good way to learn more about us and, and what we're about, what we do. Uh, we put out, uh, we call it a monitor. It comes out uh, every other week. Uh, and oftentimes in there, I'll put out some discussion on sheep and lamb. Um, so that's a good way to kind of get an idea of, of what we're working on and, and where our forecasts are at and, and uh, just a lot of our information that is available there. So that's probably the best place to go. One of the other things I'll mention is uh, I'm a reg- regular contributor to the American Sheep Industries Sheep Industry News Monthly Magazine. Uh, and in there, I talk a lot about uh, just kind of current issues and topics that are going on and kind of lay out some of my uh, forecasts that I have uh, for sheep and land production and prices. So that's a good, another good uh, source to um, check out as far as some of the uh, economic analysis work that I do. Okay, great. Now, as we kind of wrap up, I, I do want to ask, is, is there a particular take-home message that you would like to, to leave our listeners with today about the current state of uh, American lamb or, or the future state of the American lamb industry? Yeah, so I guess kind of, you know, to kind of bring in some of the things that we talked about earlier, you know, I think this inflationary environment is definitely something we have to keep a watch on, um, you know, and, and some of the talks that I give, uh, you know, the feed cost side of things is definitely a big uh, factor that has to be watched from, you know, American land production side of things. Um, and so, you know, kind of keeping that in mind, um, I think is wise for a lot of producers and, and what that sort of looks like, because that's going to be different for every producer and where they're located. Um, but I think when we kind of talk a little bit more about the trade side of things, you know, as far as my perspective, you know, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on Australian production and what's going on there. 
Um, you know, they're facing a lot of the same factors that we are from a, an economic standpoint, inflation and whatnot. Um, you know, but they're they're actively looking to get product into a lot of different markets, um, and so kind of keeping an eye on what's going on there as far as their production and trade flows. You know, but I think uh, also one of the other things I just want to sort of touch on again that I had mentioned earlier in our discussion here is just this per capita consumption side of things. We've seen a, a, a strong uptick in consumption. You know, some of the highest per capita consumption levels we've seen in in, in about the last three decades, right? And so. I'd argue that's a, a positive sign just as far as lamb consumption, um, you know, and, and a lot of that growth in per capita lamb consumption has been during an inflationary environment, just higher food costs in general. Um, and so I think, you know, seeing consumers still uh, looking and seeking to buy a quality lamb product to consume is, is positive. And, and, you know, and I, so um, from an industry standpoint, you know, still providing that quality product for these consumers to have a good eating experience you're only going to strengthen demand for lamb and, and consumption. Um, so I think you know, that's something I want to highlight and, and something that I've been seeing uh, as far as the trend moving forward here and still expecting that to happen over these next couple of years uh, as far as lamb consumption goes to, to remain strong. So positive, I think, for, for the lamb industry. Yeah, that's really exciting to, to hear you say. Uh, and again, I, you know, this has been fantastic discussion. Thank you very much for laying this out, explaining this. As I said when I opened, uh, you know, you know, we're we're familiar with uh, the fact that you know imports come from Australia and uh, kind of the seasonality of the market, but the intricacies are are complex, and, and so I really appreciate you you working through those and, and explaining that to us today. No, thank you for the opportunity to uh, discuss this further with you. I appreciate it. Sure. So, listeners, as always, we appreciate you uh, following along today and each month as we visit uh, with sheep industry experts and, and dive into topics that are hopefully interesting and, and relevant to your flocks and operations. Uh, but until next time, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and when you do, choose American. Have a nice day.